this is David Beeson welcoming you to chapter 67 of A History of England. Last time we were talking about how the impact of war and the stresses of military defeat had led to strange ups and downs in the fortunes of the leading men of the day, one of whom was that wily political operator, King George III. Men found themselves switching allegiances, breaking with friends and confronting them as opponents, or rising to power only to be brought down by erstwhile allies. You'll remember that such leading Whig politicians as Charles James Fox, Edmund Burke and William Pitt the Younger had worked together to bring down the government of Lord North, who also called himself a Whig, although history refers to him as a Tory. These were confusing times. There had, however, been tensions between Pitt, Fox and Burke, and when Pitt set out on a ministerial career, he began to separate from the other two. We spoke about the extraordinary maiden speech that Pitt had given in the House of Commons. It probably won't surprise you to learn, therefore, that when he set out on his path to ministerial office, he again took a most unusual approach. Once North's government had fallen and the king, much against his wishes, had called on the Marquis of Rockingham to form a new one, Pitt made a statement in which he made clear that while he would support that government, he would not accept a ministerial position unless it was a senior one. Horace Walpole, journalist son of Britain's first Prime Minister Robert Walpole, remember him, attacked the arrogance of the statement coming from a boy with no experience of government whatsoever. That arrogance, however, didn't work out too badly for Pitt. When Rockingham died and Shelburne formed a new administration, the one abandoned in disgust by Burke and Fox, Pitt joined it, and in no junior capacity. He became Chancellor of the Exchequer. That's not quite as senior as it would be today. It's the quaint title still used for Britain's Minister of Finance. Back then, with no official Prime Minister, the Head of Government took the title First Lord of the Treasury, still a courtesy title for modern Prime Ministers, the Treasury being the quaint name still used for Britain's Finance Ministry. Shelburne intended to be an active First Lord, so, in effect, Pitts was the number two position but it still gave him a seat in Cabinet, a seriously big position for a man just 23 years old. You already know that the Shelburne administration didn't last long. It fell following one of the more shocking rearrangements of this time of political fluidity and kaleidoscopic realignments. Fox, after years of bitter attacks on Lord North, now set up an unholy alliance with him. Together, they commanded a majority in the Commons, and that was enough to bring Shelburne down. That marriage of convenience between two long-time enemies impressed few people in Britain. One of the least impressed was the one who wore the crown. Fox and the King loathed each other bitterly, you might say royally. George III cast around frantically to find anyone, absolutely anyone to call on to lead a government, so he didn't have to appoint one in which Fox would play a major role. This would be the fourth government in Britain in little over a year. 
Even though some ministers stayed in post from one government to the next, that frighteningly rapid turnover meant that Britain was running through its senior politicians at an alarming rate, and the choices available to the king were limited. Indeed, the field was so weak that the only plausible candidate was William Pitt, despite his mere 23 years of age and his government experience of just under a year. That, though, only led to a new shock for the king. He quickly discovered that Pitt wasn't an option either. Pitt could see where the majority stood in the Commons and had no enthusiasm for leading a government facing an opposition so powerful that it could bring him down within days. He said no. Remember what had happened some months earlier when the king had realised he had no choice but to appoint the late Marquis of Rockingham? He'd received the message, The king must not give a veto to the independence of America. A subject telling the king what he must not do? The very foundations of the kingdom were being rocked. Now another subject was saying no to forming a government when the king invited him to. Can you imagine Thomas Cromwell saying no to Henry VIII when told to organise Anne Boleyn's execution? The correct answer to an invitation from a king was, Yes, Your Majesty. Were people becoming so uppity that they no longer recognised a royal invitation as an order? So desperate was the king that he once more talked of abdicating, though once more he thought better of it. Instead, he grudgingly allowed Fox and North to try to form a government. He was, however, as uncooperative as possible, issuing far harsher demands on them than he had on others, and generally making their lives difficult. Then they also made things difficult for themselves. The Fox and North factions fell out with each other over the distribution of ministerial posts. The king saw another chance to avoid letting them into power at all. Again, he turned to Pitt with a one-line letter summoning him to his presence. This time, Pitt made a major speech in the Commons attacking the Fox-North coalition. That gave him a chance to assess what support he might be able to count on in the House. What he saw confirmed it simply wasn't sufficient. He once more told the King no. He'd now established an important principle – Pitt, and not the king, would decide when the time was right for him to form a government. And, though he might be a subject of his king's, it was perfectly legitimate to say no if he judged the conditions to be wrong. The king, however, was seriously displeased. I am much hurt, he wrote to Pitt, to find that you are determined to decline at an hour when those who have any regard for the constitution as established by law ought to stand forth against the most daring and most unprincipled faction that the annals of this kingdom ever produced. He wrote another abdication letter, which he didn't send. The king ultimately admitted defeat. Fox and North formed their government under the nominal leadership of the Duke of Portland, but with themselves pulling the strings. Pitt resigned as Chancellor of the Exchequer. We know how the Fox-North coalition ended. They got the peace agreements with America, France, Spain and Holland signed. But then they tried to nationalise the East India Company, which would have the by-product of putting a great deal of patronage finance at their disposal. 
With their substantial majority in the Commons, they got the measure adopted there. But then it reached the Lords, and there it met some pretty dirty work. William Hague, in his biography of William Pitt the Younger, describes what happened as a head of state mounting a political coup d'etat against his own government. A coup can only work if it has a figurehead. William Pitt remained the best available candidate. And this time, when the king sounded him out, his third time of asking, Pitt decided he might just be prepared to have a go at putting a government together at last. You see, some important things had changed. Pitt's behaviour towards the king had made sure he would never be merely his puppet. Pitt knew that if he became Prime Minister, it wouldn't be easy to dismiss him, since there was no good alternative readily available. And Pitt was keenly aware that the Fox North Coalition was losing popularity with the public, which saw their collaboration as rank opportunism and their attempts to take over the East India Company as a naked bid for patronage funds. The issue was how to bring down a government with a majority in the House of Commons. Pitt joined the conspiracy, offering the King advice. As we know, George set about leaning on members of the House of Lords. That culminated with the King's threat to regard any peer who voted for the East India Bill as an enemy. The result was that the bill was lost in the Lords. The King took that defeat for his enemies as a pretext to turf them out of government and to appoint Pitt to form a new one. That made William Pitt, at 24, the youngest Prime Minister Britain has ever had. So now the King and Pitt had answered the question of how to bring down a government with a Commons majority. Next, they were faced with a far trickier question of sustaining in power a government without one. When Pitt's appointment was announced, Fox and North understandably laughed at it, knowing they could bring him down in short order by simply blocking any measure his government proposed. But then Pitt moved into phase two of the coup. He lost vote after vote in the Commons, but he refused to go. You see, he didn't have to. Britain had no written constitution. How governments behaved was generally guided by precedent. No law obliged Pitt to leave office, and Fox couldn't turn to a court to force his resignation. Pitt might have had to go had Fox and North voted him down on a so-called supplies question, which determined how much money the government got. But Fox bottled out of that, fearing that his supporters would not be prepared to go so far as to leave the nation's government without the resources to govern. Vote after vote went against Pitt, but the majorities grew smaller and smaller. The very last vote of that kind saw Fox win by a majority of just one. The King and Pitt were working in close collaboration. They would identify men with many parliamentary seats in their gift, through pocket boroughs or other forms of patronage. Then maybe that person, or a close relative, might find themselves elevated to the House of Lords, and lo and behold, the MPs in those seats would switch their allegiance. That whittled away the opposition majority. The public was rallying around too. We're now into the early months of 1784. Pitts was the fifth government in two years. People were sick of the instability. 
after all the war was over. The American colonies had been irretrievably lost, it's true, but it was time to move on. Public debts needed to be reduced. Britain had been humiliated, but with its deepening industrial revolution and its remaining possessions across the globe, it had vast resources and it was time to rebuild. Loyal addresses started to pour in from cities across Britain. They congratulated the King and Pitts for their stewardship of the nation's affairs. Not for the first or the last time in history, two powerful politicians from the elite of society, Pitt and the King, would turn populist to undermine the Constitution. That's the unwritten Constitution, based on precedent, but a Constitution nonetheless. Pitts carefully cultivated his image as the honest man who could rise to the challenges the nation faced. Plenty of people suspected, or perhaps knew, that he'd plotted with the king to bring down the Fox North government. His denials were barefaced. I came up no backstairs, I know of no secret influence, and I hope that my own integrity would be my guardian against that danger. Claiming to be transparently honest while telling a pack of lies is clearly another long-standing political tradition. Finally, the two conspirators decided that they'd laid the groundwork well. Pitt came to the conclusion that it was time for a general election. In March, the King dissolved Parliament, which kicked off the campaign. In 18th century elections, results would trickle in over many weeks, but by mid-May, it was clear that Pitt had won a big majority. This was the 1784 general election, which, you'll remember, led to Fox being only narrowly re-elected in his own seat in Westminster and having that win denied for a year. He sat throughout that time as MP for a Scottish pocket borough, so he was still in Parliament, but being kept out of his prized Westminster seat was a humiliation. Pitt had won, and won big. So, apparently, had the King. A new era was about to open. That's what we'll start looking at next time. Many thanks for listening. Yeah.